we're going to be learning Parashat Yitro. Parashat Yitro is actually a very short uh, parasha, relatively speaking, um, in terms of length. But it's obviously very critical parasha because it speaks about the Aserat HaDibrot, the Ten Commandments, which are of great interest and great significance um, for many reasons. What I would like to uh, focus on, I think, is um, really the Aserat HaDibrot require a... Uh, more time and more analysis than we would ever be able to offer in one shiur because they are each one of them is is uh, you know it requires a shiur in its own right and that's why they're so important. Uh, it's you know it's it's also as I've mentioned in the in Kenisa before we shouldn't make the mistake of thinking the Aseret HaDibrot are more holy or they are more sacred or more true than any other part of the Torah. Obviously, the entire Torah is equally true and every word of the Torah is true. But the Aseret HaDibrot were significant because they provided a... Uh, first of all, because it was direct communication from God to the Jewish people and it provided a framework for all subsequent mitzvot that would be given, a framework that the Jewish people would have and could grasp and understand and that basically provides almost the headings for all other mitzvot. Um, and therefore, each one of them is really a, uh, a discussion in its own right of great depth. And we wouldn't be able to do justice even to one of the Aserat HaDibrot in the time allotted to us. So rather than try to attempt uh, such a futile mission, I thought I would start with the beginning and talking about Yitro a little bit. I think in the past I've spoken about Yitro and the specific uh, approach of Yitro to Hashem. Yitro uses the name of God, which is Elohim, specifically. And that's Aleph, Lamed, Hey, Yud, Mem, Elohim. And typically that's translated as God, whereas Yud, Ke, Vav, Ke, with the, the four-letter name of Hashem that we don't pronounce, that we pronounce as Adonai, it's usually translated as Hashem, or in older translations that would be the eternal which is actually very accurate because the Yud and the He and Vav and He are supposed to represent the idea of Hayah He was, He is, and He always will be. In other words, the eternity of God is represented in the idea of the four-letter name of Hashem. So, uh, uh, so it's it's very noteworthy because throughout the the, the entire story of uh, of the Makot of Yitzhak Mitzrayim. Specifically, the name of God that is mentioned again and again is Yud Kevavke, and the idea is that Moshe Rabbeinu is introducing to the Jews and to Paro the idea represented by the name, the four-letter name of Hashem, and that is emphasized even in the beginning of Parashat Bayra when Hashem says to Moshe, "I appeared to the Avot as El Shaddai, but I did I did not make myself known to them through the name Yud Kevavke, through the name Hashem, and." Paro, of course, says, I don't know Hashem, and I will not send the Jews out. And so we know that the discussion of this name of Hashem is very uh, central to the story of Yitzhak Mitzrayim. So for, for Yitro to come and use the name Elohim a lot, he does say Hashem, he uses the name Hashem, but he refers to God as Elohim quite a lot, to the point that it says at the end that he... Um, uh, he said, it says that he brought He brought offerings to Elohim. And this is the only place in the entire Torah where a person is described as bringing a sacrifice to God and he uses the name Elohim. It's the only place. 
And, uh, and we notice also later on that Yitro uses the same language when he talks to Moshe Rabbeinu, when he tells Moshe Rabbeinu that Moshe Rabbeinu has to reform the way in which he's administering justice and running the practical affairs of the nation. He says, Elohim amod. You have to, God has to commend you and has to endorse the changes that I'm suggesting that you implement in the way that you are dispensing justice. And he says, Elohim, and Elohim will command you. So, the name Elohim is clearly the uh, uh, emphasized here for a reason. Obviously, every word in the Torah is significant, and every word in the Torah is there for a reason. But the fact that we're shifting gears back to the name Elohim it can't be by accident. After so much emphasis being placed on the name Hashem throughout the story of Shemot up till now, and Yitro uh, is uh, you know seems to be in particular, particularly using that name, even after he's been introduced to the name of Hashem, he's still using the name Elohim throughout the discussion with Moshe, and uh, it, the the. There's a whole, there's a question, I just want to backtrack for a second. There is a bigger question here in terms of the order of the parasha. The order of the parasha of Yitro. We know that the opening scene of the parasha of Yitro is Yitro coming. He has heard, it says, and Yitro heard, that he heard everything that Hashem had done for Moshe and for the Jewish people and had taken them out of Egypt and therefore he brought the wife and the children of Moshe and he comes to meet Moshe. The question is, when did this occur in the timeline of everything else that's going on? Now, in the parasha, it seems to have occurred right after the war with Amalek. In other words, right after Amalek attacked the Jewish people. And right before the giving of the Torah. If you're reading the timeline of the Torah as it's presented to us, the simple meaning, the simple reading of the timeline, the chronology of the Torah, that's what happened. But if you take a look at the commentaries, they're not satisfied with that explanation. And they have the majority of the commentaries, I would say. Certainly Rashi, most of the Midrashim, the Ibn Ezra, the Rambam's son in his commentary on the Torah, where quoting his father, the Rambam. All of them agree that the story of Yitro did not happen when it appears in the Torah. It's dece- it's, uh, looks can be deceiving. It actually happened after the giving of the Torah. And what they point to to support that contention, that argument, is they say that you see that Moshe is judging the people and he says, I have to make known to the people Elohim I have to teach them the laws of God and his instructions. Now what laws of God and instructions are there? Obviously the Torah that was given. So therefore Moshe Rabbeinu is teaching them Torah that he received on Mount Sinai, and it must be that this happened after the giving of the Torah then, that Yitro showed up after the giving of the Torah. In fact, the Ibn Ezra puts the arrival of Yitro all the way a year after the giving of the Torah, almost, at the time that the Mishkan was built. And he says that the fact that we see that Yitro offers sacrifices with Moshe to um, celebrate his newfound acceptance of God and his recognition that God is the true creator and master of the universe at this celebration that they have in these sacrifices it says that he offered sacrifices before God that's referring to the Mishkan, referring to the tabernacle which means that this happens a year after the Jews left Egypt because the Jews left Egypt in Nisan and the Mishkan was constructed in the beginning of Nisan so uh, around Rosh Chodesh Nisan in fact so that would mean that uh, that Yitro actually uh, is arriving almost a year after Yitzhak Mitzrayim, well after the Torah was given, which was only uh, 50 days after Yitzhak Mitzrayim. So that's according to most of the commentaries. 
And so then, of course, the, they, and they invoke the principle, in muqdam um Torah. There's no chronological order to the Torah. The Torah doesn't always speak in chronological order. Sometimes it speaks out of order, deliberately. And there are many, many examples of such a thing happening, and many examples, some major, some minor, where we know that things are out of order. The way that they appear to us is not the way that they actually happened in terms of the chronological order. However... The, um, the, there are those who disagree. There are Midrashim that disagree with this, and there are arguments against it. And the uh, most outspoken of the commentators who argues against this view is the Ramban, Nachmanides, another great Sephardic rabbi. Uh, and I'm just going to read to you a little bit about what he writes to argue against this. He doesn't like the idea, the suggestion of Ein Mukdam He agrees with the idea of Ein Mukdam that the Torah is not always in chronological order. That everybody agrees. But the question is, does that apply to this case or not? Because the, the Ramban's view, Nachmani's view is that if we can explain the Torah without making recourse to changing the order, that's always better. So the Ramban gives an example of, um, of uh, he says, The rabbis argue about this parasha. Some say it was before the giving of the Torah exactly as it appears, and some say that no, it was after the giving of the Torah. And, uh, and he quotes the... Um, some of the proofs for that view that it's that that Yitro came after the giving of the Torah, also that it calls the mountain the mountain of God, which was the name that it was given because of the giving of the Torah at the mountain. And he brings other things, some of which I've already mentioned. But then he says, Vim ani al-adatazo. He says, But I have a problem with this reasoning. And he says that what about the fact that it says that what Yitro heard was Yitzyat Mitzrayim? Now, if Yitro came. He said, if Yitro came after the giving of the Torah, why does it only say that he heard about the miracles that happened in Egypt? Why doesn't it say, he says, Why doesn't it mention that he also heard about the miracles of the giving of the Torah? That's a very major thing. It only mentions the Yitzhak Mitzrayim. And why doesn't it tell us about the Har Sinai? And why doesn't Moshe Rabbeinu tell him about Har Sinai? Because... When, when he meets Yitro, he tells them everything God did for them in Egypt and everything that God did for them on the way. Why doesn't he mention and also he gave us the Torah if this happened after the giving of the Torah? He doesn't mention it. That would be a strange omission if this happened after the, uh, after the giving of the Torah, says the Ramban. And he says, therefore, Vakaove lies, says the Ramban. He says, Therefore, the Ramban concludes that, um, that, the, that Yitro came before the giving of the Torah, and that we should take things literally. And he deals with some other problems that uh, emerge from this interpretation. For example, the fact that Yitro leaves, seems to leave at the end of the story, and yet we learn that he didn't leave until the book of Bamidbar. That fits better with the view of the, of the Ibn Ezra, that uh, that that the uh, that Yitro's arrival was later, and that therefore he left shortly after the meeting with Moshe Rabbeinu, and shortly after the meeting, uh, you know, the uh, reforming of the justice system that he did, because it says that he left. You know, uh, he never came back and left again. Otherwise, you're gonna have to say he came back and left again. So the Ramban deals with some of the problems that uh, that come with this interpretation, but. What I what I would say is that no matter what, whether you take the whatever your historical opinion here is, okay, whether you think that the troll came before the giving of the Torah or after the giving of the Torah, you have the same question, which is why does the Torah put this story here? Why does the Torah put the story? Here? If you're going to tell me that this happened 
um, before the giving of the Torah, and therefore it's chronological, chronologically accurate that, that Yitro came at this time. Still, we want to understand why is the story so significant that we interrupt this whole process of describing the Jewish people becoming ready to receive the Torah with a discussion about Yitro arriving, having his personal meeting with Moshe Rabbeinu and telling Moshe Rabbeinu how to do his job, basically. Why do we have that? That's, uh, that's, what, that's the question on the Ramban too. Why does the Torah see fit to discuss this? Number two, if it's out of order, so then you still have the question of, so then why is it out of order? I mean, saying that it's out of order is an excuse for, you know, to solve the problem that it doesn't seem to fit at this point in the story. But so why did the Torah put it out of order? That still remains a question. We don't have an answer to that question of why the Torah is placing it out of order. Stating that it is doesn't give us an explanation for why. So no matter what, whether it actually happened before the giving of the Torah or whether it is just put before the giving of the Torah, we have to understand why it's appearing before the giving of the Torah, what's the significance of it. And I think that's the, um, that key principle is really what the idea of en mukdam muhabba Torah means, that there's no chronological order to the Torah. What it means is that we're not interested so much in the, his, the historical chronology of what happened first and what happened second. What we're interested in is the ideas that the Torah is trying to present to us and the lessons the Torah is trying to present to us. And sometimes, if you learn any subject, if a person teach, if you're teaching, uh, if you're teaching science, you don't teach science in the order that the discoveries were made by scientists. You teach science in the order that the subject matter dictates. And it doesn't matter that one, one of the insights was discovered later than the other one. That doesn't mean you present it later. And the same is true in any other subject, and in, in, in Torah also. If we want to learn the most fundamental idea of the Torah, it's not necessarily in the first page of the Torah. You have to you start according to the subject matter. And that's what it means, we're not slaves to the chronology and the history here. We want to know the ideas. So whether you go with the Ramban, that Yitro came at this time before the giving of the Torah, or you go with the other commentaries that say that he came... Uh, later, and that the Torah just put it here. So still the question is, why does the Torah put it here? And what, what, what purpose is it serving? And so what I'd like to suggest really is to go back to that theme of Elohim, that Yitro uses the name Elohim, and we know that also the Aserat Debrot opened with Vaidabir Elohim, that Elohim spoke all of these words. What's the significance of the divine name Elohim as opposed to Hashem? So we will oftentimes hear that the difference is that Elohim is a reference to justice and Hashem is a reference to mercy, the compassion of God, as opposed to the justice of God. Another way to think of that is that Elohim refers to God as the source of order and law in the world. Order and law in creation, the laws of nature. That's why it says, And also law as it applies to us in the Torah, let's say, for example, or the laws that apply to the Bnei Noach, any time that God is holding a person to a standard, to a law, that's called Elohim. Elohim means the source of order and the source of design and, uh, and lawfulness. And that's something that, that's why the Creator is called Elohim. That's why the Giver of the Torah is called Elohim. Because order and lawfulness. Now why is Hashem associated with mercy? 
Because mercy always means making an exception to the rule. Mercy means that you see that a criminal, really, according to the law, he should get 20 years to life in jail. But because of his special circumstances and because he's able to be rehabilitated and because he's done good things and shown good character and there are other considerations about him that we need to weigh, therefore we're going to make an exception to the rule and we're going to say that he gets less of a, a sentence, uh, more opportunity to, um, to, you know, to uh, better himself and to return to society. Because we're looking at the individual. We're not just looking at the law and the general rule. Elohim is the general rules and law. And Hashem is exceptions to the rule. That's why Hashem is Hayah, Oveh, V'yiyah. Hashem is eternal. He's not limited by time and space. Time and space is governed by laws and rules. But for Hashem, who's beyond time and space, He can also make exceptions and relate to the individual as unique. Not just in terms of laws and rules, and so that's what the uh, what the name Elohim refers to. Now, with that in mind, there's another um, there's another two points that come together to clarify why Elohim is so important. The first is if you remember the parasha before this, parashat Bishalach, is the attack of Amalek. Now, the Ibn Ezra and some other commentaries also say that some of the, the Midrash says actually that, that Yitro heard about the war of Amalek and that's why he came. Because he had heard about that. But the Ibn Ezra even goes further and says that you see that Amalek responded to Yitziat Mitzrayim by attacking the Jews and by trying to hurt them, take advantage of their weakness and vulnerability, whereas Yitro came to learn from the Jewish people and to come closer to God. And what is the language of the Torah? And I'm adding this myself. Ibn Ezra didn't say this, but what is the language of the Torah that's, that, that supports? That there's a link between the story of Amalek, which came right before the story of Yitro in the Torah, and the, the episode of Yitro. In both cases, it says the word Elohim, because it says, Velo Elohim, that the Amalekim did not fear God. And it uses the word Elohim, meaning that they didn't believe in justice. They didn't believe in fairness. They didn't believe in doing what was right. They wanted to take advantage of the Jewish people's vulnerability and weakness at a time where they, were on, where they had just escaped from Egypt, Egyptian slavery and were not yet established. And the Amalekim, instead of having compassion on them or instead of appreciating what God had done, they wanted to destroy what they saw as God's justice. Whereas Yitro, on the other hand, appreciated God's justice. And as I've mentioned in the past, one of the things that we should understand about Amalek is that Amalek is usually presented as like these arch-villains who are anti-Semites and want to destroy the Jewish people. But Amalek actually is something more specific than that. What Amalek was, they were basically, uh, a way to think of Amalek is they were pirates, but pirates on land, not on sea. And what they did was they would find poorly defended tribes or, you know, unsuspecting people who were weak, who were not very uh, military, pre- militarily prepared, and they would ambush them and just steal all of their stuff. Or if they saw that a certain camp was abandoned because the people had gone hunting or the people had gone, you know, moved away from their camp and left their stuff unattended, these are the people who would come in and take all of their stuff as quickly as possible and run with it. So I call them land pirates. And that's obviously exactly the opposite 
of uh, what it means to practice justice, because justice means that there is an, a sense of law and a sense of fairness and a sense of equity. And the people of Amalek were against that concept. The people of Amalek were selfish. The people of Amalek were wanted to take advantage of the weak and the vulnerable instead of protect their rights and safeguard their, uh, you know, their freedom and their uh, and their privileges. So. Amalek were people who preyed on the weak and the vulnerable. They were the opposite of justice, which protects the vulnerable by applying the same rules to everybody. That was not the way of Amalek. That was why Amalek hated the Jewish people so much, because they brought the concept of law, of divine law, of justice, of order, of accountability, responsibility, of fairness. They brought that idea into the world. Amalek did not like that idea and therefore wanted to, had a, were, were against that idea. But what made Amalek so evil is that they stand for the opposite of what the Jewish people stand for. The Jewish people stand for justice, tzedek umishpat, like what it says about Abraham Avinu, that, they, that Abraham Avinu was going to teach his children the way of Hashem, lasot tzedakah umishpat, to do righteousness and, just, and justice. That is the goal, that is the purpose of the Jewish people and the mission of the Jewish people. Amalek is the opposite. They don't want justice. They want, they're selfish and self-serving. And rather than be concerned about protecting the rights of the vulnerable, they want to exploit the vulnerable to the fullest extent of, uh, 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 that they can. Like the people who scam the elderly and try to take all of their money uh, by doing these phone scams, these email scams, taking advantage of the people who are the uh, least protected. That's what Amalek would do. And that's why it's a mitzvah to get rid of Amalek. Amalek is not an ethnic group, really. It's not a, uh, it's not a, um, a, a race. It's not, a, it's not any kind of um, specific group of people in terms of a bloodline. What it is, is a certain type of a way of living. It's a certain type of a, a way of life and a culture. And that's why there was constantly Amalek. Even after Shaul practically destroyed Amalek, David is still facing Amalek in his time. If you look in the Tanakh, why? Because Amalek wasn't really a family of, a, you know, a tribe. Amalek was really a way of living. And that way of living and that type of uh, these bands of robbers going around and just trying to live off of pirating other people's stuff is against the principles of Torah and against what the Jewish state and what the Jewish, uh, you know, uh, philosophy pr- uh, proclaims is right. And so, therefore, the uh, Amalek is the, uh, is the, is is they don't fear God, they don't acknowledge a universal justice, they don't want to acknowledge it. Whereas Yitro comes because he sees the justice. And we know that what brought Moshe Rabbeinu and Yitro together to begin with, back in the time of Mitzrayim, was that Yitro saw that Moshe Rabbeinu stood up for the rights of his daughters when they were being harassed at the wells. In other words... Unlike the Jewish people who didn't want Moshe Rabbeinu to interfere in their situation and make it any worse, Yitro appreciated that Moshe Rabbeinu was motivated by concerns of justice and by defending the vulnerable and by holding up the rule of law and therefore welcomed him into his home and even wanted him to marry his daughter. And, uh, and they, were, they had a bond with one another based on their mutual, uh, you know, their shared love of justice and righteousness. And this is, what the, this is what formed the basis of the relationship between them. So when Yitro comes, he's bothered by something. The Midrash says that he was bothered by Yitzhak Mitzrayim a little bit. And Rashik actually brings these Midrashim, but the Midrash says he was a little bit troubled by it. Because he felt that it was God playing favorites. It was God punishing the Mitzrayim 
and protecting the Jews. In other words, Hashem was advocating for the Jews and attacking the Mitzrayim. He was playing like a nationalistic favoritism on behalf of the Jews. And that's why it says that at the end, after Moshe Rabbeinu explained everything to Yitro, it says, Now I know that God is greater, that Hashem is greater than all other gods. Because in this matter, the Egyptians had committed evil against the Jewish people. And therefore I understand that this was righteous and this was just that they were punished. It wasn't a matter of favoritism or Jewish nationalism or, Jewish pre- or prejudice in favor of the Jews and against the Egyptians. It was genuine justice that the Jewish people were held accountable when they did wrong. And because of that, they had to be enslaved. And the Egyptians were held accountable when they did wrong. And because they threw babies into the ocean, they were thrown into the ocean. They were punished measure for measure, midah keneged midah. And that shows a God who is not playing favorites, a God who is truly Elohim, who is truly an arbiter of justice and lawfulness. And that's why he says, now I know that this God is greater than all of the gods. And the rabbis say that he went and tried every type of idolatry. He was actually the former priest of Midian. He had given up the religion. Because he said all of these different religions are belief that, oh, the God of Moab, the God of Ammon, these national gods, these tribal gods who just want sacrifices from their devotees and will do whatever they want and will serve the needs of... The God of Moab only cares about the needs of Moab and only advocates for Moab as long as the Moabites give him sacrifices and whatever he wants. And the God of... Uh, of Ammon does whatever the Ammonim want, whether it's right or wrong, as long as the people of Ammon sacrifice to him, and so on. That's the philosophy of idolatry, that it's, an, it's, a, uh, it's a transactional relationship. We give to the God, and the God does for us what we want. It's a negotiation. That's not justice. That's a matter of influence. If you can influence the God to do what you want, it doesn't matter whether it's right or wrong. The God of Moab is going to advocate for Moab. The God of Ammon is going to advocate for Ammon. The gods of Egypt are going to advocate for Egypt. And the gods of Greece are going to advocate for Greece. And that's what made him disillusioned because he was someone who loved justice and the universal concept of fairness and equity for all human beings. And he said any God that doesn't play by the rules, in other words, any God who is not fair and who plays favorites, and who does not administer justice, and there is no lawfulness, and there is no righteousness, and there is no equity, and there is no sense of fairness and equality, this cannot be the true God. And so he was dissatisfied with all the other gods, but then he saw that Hashem, the the creator of the world, doesn't play any favorites. We're all his creatures. So he's going to hold every person accountable for what they do wrong, and he's going to reward everyone for what they do right. So if the people, if the, when the Jews do wrong, they're held accountable, and when the Egyptians do wrong, they're held accountable. And as Yonah learned in the book of Yonah, when the people of Nineveh sinned, they would be punished, and if they repented, they would be spared. That's how God works it with justice. And that's what attracted Yitro, and that's why it says that when Yitro brought his sacrifices, he brought olahuz vachim Elohim. He brought sacrifices to Elohim, to the God of justice. Not because that's the ultimate concept of God, because actually God is even beyond that. Justice is just the way that we see God's wisdom and design in creation and in the Torah, in the lawfulness and the order. Hashem, is, of course, ultimately transcends even that and is beyond that. But 
Yitro saw through the prism of justice the greatness of God. And that's why this, he, his story comes right after the story of Amalek. That's what the Ibn Ezra says, because Amalek was against the Jewish people and didn't fear God. And Yitro comes and he wants to learn from them. But I'm pointing out that the term fearing God, and taking a little bit further what the Ibn Ezra said, says explicitly, he doesn't say this explicitly. He points out the connection between Amalek and Yitro and that even in the future, Yitro's descendants end up living in the same area of, as Amalek. So when Shaul, the king Shaul, goes to fight against Amalek, he has to tell the descendants of Yitro to get out of the way, uh, get off the battlefield, so they don't get caught in the war. But the connection runs deeper than just the fact that uh, one non-Jewish group attacks the idea of God and one and because, it, because it represents justice and it's against their way of life. And one person comes seeking a knowledge of God. That's true. But it's, also, it's specifically based on this idea of justice here, I think, that Amalek is against justice. They're about exploitation. And Yitro was the opposite. He was against exploitation. He believed in justice. And therefore, because he believed in justice, <clears throat> that was where, how he was able to see that this was the true God. A God who is impartial, a God who is fair and just, is a God who is princip- has principle, is go- governs by principle and not by capricious human-like, self-serving motives. And that was what attracted Yitro to the idea of God. That perhaps is why it says that Amalek did not fear God, but Yitro sacrifices to God and recognizes God and sees him through the prism of justice. And this idea, this idea of Yitro having this inspiration is perhaps here because the idea of recognizing God through his the order and the lawfulness that he imposes on creation. When we read about the giving of the Torah, it sounds like a very specific and um, a very a kind of a favoritism to the Jewish people, a kind of a singling out of the Jewish people. And of course it is. It's saying that we're a chosen people. We have a special mission. But we need to see it in the context of justice. We need to see it in the context that God is the creator and the judge of all mankind. And the lawfulness that he displays in the universe and that he displays in the Torah applies to the way that he deals with every human being as well. And he throws an example of somebody who sees that and appreciates that. And we have to see and appreciate that the lawfulness and the order that God uh, reveals to us in the world and in the Torah is accessible not only to us, but also to all of human beings, including Yitro, and could have been ex- also accessible to Amalek, but they didn't want to see it. And that could be why the story of Yitro comes here, to establish this idea of God's justice. This, the next story is Moshe Rabbeinu judging the people. So that's, again, on the theme of justice. But what does Yitro say to Moshe? He sees that Moshe is judging the people from day to night, all day long. They're standing around waiting in line. He's judging them. And Yitro says, if you keep this up, you're going to destroy yourself. You're going to have burnout. Because you're, not, you're, you're exhausting yourself. You need to delegate. You need to give other people the reins, allow them to judge the easier cases, you just take the difficult cases. You teach the laws and allow them to administer the laws and apply the laws. Don't take it all upon yourself. Otherwise, you're going to be destroyed. You're going to be worn out. And this nation is going to be worn out from this because there won't be effective judgment and there won't be effective leadership with one person governing. And he says, Elohim, And Elohim will command you. And then you'll be able to do it. And Yitro tells them that what you need is people who are Yirei Elohim. You need people who are Fearing of God. Again, he uses the word Elohim here, 
because he's always emphasizing this principle of uh, of justice and equity that God's seal, so to speak, that the what represents God's uh, involvement and 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 God's um, governance is the principle of justice. He calls it Yir Elohim. He also also when Moshe Rabbeinu talks to him about what he's teaching, he says, "I'm teaching them Chukea Elohim." I'm te- teaching them the laws of Elohim. He doesn't say the name Hashem. So what is Yitro, what is this story really showing here? So Yitro is saying to Moshe Rabbeinu, you're going to risk burnout. Now you might say that's totally incidental. I mean, what, what, why is this significant that, that Yitro gave advice to Moshe about how he should run the government of Israel that he should, he should delegate? But there's a, there's a principle here as well, which is justice applies to yourself too. Justice means you need to make sure that you're balanced and that you are giving yourself what you need. Justice means uh, that everyone is judged, everyone is held accountable, everyone is measured by the same yardstick, by the same measure, by the same, uh, by the same standard. You can't be a superman. You can't expect that you're going to be able to extend yourself further than uh, anyone else. And therefore, you're going to destroy yourself thinking that you're some kind of a superman. It's also a lack of perspective. The same lack of perspective that leads to injustice because you favor certain people over others. Or you're prejudiced against certain people as opposed to others. Will also be a, a, will, another symptom of that kind of thinking is the belief that you are invincible to burnout. You will not burn out. You will be able to handle everything and more. All of it on your plate. And that's not true. That's not realistic. And the same God that established order in the world also established that you need to rest yourself sometimes. You need to free yourself up so that you are not crushed under the weight of your responsibilities. You know, there's a famous story about the Chafetz Chaim. It's a very famous story that uh, he would tell the uh, he would tell the students in the yeshiva to go home at a certain time at night, not to learn all night. That it wasn't healthy for them. They needed to get a good night's sleep. And the story goes that he would come in the Beit Midrash and let the students know that it was time to go home. And one time he came into the Beit Midrash and he told everybody to go home and they kept learning. And he told them again, guys, listen, you need to go home, get a good night's sleep, come back tomorrow. They started learning even more. It was like they thought it was a test. You know, he was telling them to go home and they wanted to show that, no, they're not going to go home. They're going to learn even more. They're going to be even louder. They're even more intense. Eventually he turned out all the lights. He said, go home. You need to go home. And he shared with them a story that when he was younger, he had burned himself out. He said he, had, he was not sleeping enough. He tried to sleep the minimum amount, two, three hours a night, pushed himself beyond his limits. He ended up getting so sick that he lost months of time in learning because he was so burnt out and so harmed by this, the unhealthy lifestyle that he had taken. And he said in the same way, basically your the gain that you get from pushing yourself too hard, you end up losing on the other end when you burn yourself out. And so what he's saying is that you have to realize you're governed by the same principles of nature as everyone else. God will command it to you that this is what you need to do. You need to, the same principles of rationality and order and justice have to be applied to the administration of the community. And that means that you're not immune to the harm that would come from burning yourself out. And I, as I mentioned on Shabbat, that, that shows you there's no shame in saying I need to set limits, that I need to balance my lifestyle, 
and make sure that I don't go overboard. I can't expect myself to do more than I'm capable of, to push myself beyond what the natural limitations are of a human being and think I'm some kind of a superman that will just drive a person into the ground. If even Moshe Rabbeinu wouldn't be able to do that. He said, by the principle of justice, is what Yitro said, by the same principle God created you like everybody else and there are balance, there's a balance that has to be struck and there are limits that have to be imposed and there are, you know, there are boundaries that have to be established and if you don't observe them, you're going to cause yourself harm. And I mentioned also on Shabbat an example of this that I like very much, that the Rambam in Moriah Nebuchim, which is a, the ph- philosophical book of the Rambam that most people don't get into as much, but it's of course a very important work for those who are a little bit more advanced in Jewish philosophy, he says, he talks about the reasons for the mitzvot, and um, he gives a reason for the mitzvah of Shabbat that is very odd. Uh, he says that one of the reasons for Shabbat is that a person gets to spend one-seventh of their life resting, not working. Just like the way that a person spends about a, a third of their life, a quarter to a third of their life sleeping, if they sleep six to eight hours a night, which they should. So he says, spending one-seventh of your life resting is a good thing. And, I, and everyone asks, you know, what a weird reason to give for the mitzvah of Shabbat. I mean, the reason for Shabbat is to acknowledge that God created the universe. It says it in the Torah that that's the reason. The Rambam himself and other places, both in the Mishneh Torah, his book of laws, and also in the Moran Nebuchim, the book of philosophy says that the reason for Shabbat is to recognize that God created the world. Why all of a sudden you're coming with this extraneous reason that I need to have one-seventh of my life be a vacation? In fact, the Gemara says that some of the non-Jews used to criticize the Jews and say that they always made an excuse that they couldn't work on this day and they couldn't work on that day. It's Pesach, it's Shabbat, it says that because they wanted to always take off of work. How is that a reason for Shabbat? Just that you should have less time working. So I suggest as follows. That yes, Shabbat is about recognizing God as the creator. That is true. Of course. But one of the ways that we recognize God as the creator is by recognizing that we are creatures of God. And as creatures of God, we have limits. We don't have an infinite store, store of energy. We don't, have a, uh, we don't have an infinite ability to push ourselves. We need to rest. We need to recharge. We need to take a step back and rejuvenate ourselves on a regular basis. So yes, that taking of one-seventh of our time as rest sounds like a very quaint explanation for Shabbat. But in and of itself, it's actually a recognition of God as the creator. Because what it's saying is that because God created me and I'm just a creature, I'm finite and limited, I also need a break. I need to rest. I need to strike a balance and I need to recognize that there are laws and rules and principles that govern my health also. And if I overtax myself, I'll be damaged. And how do I know that? Because that also is an example of, of God's creation of the world. The fact that we as creatures are subject to certain laws. One of them is that we need to rest. One of them is that we need to eat and drink also. That we need to relax sometimes. We need to get our mind off of our work sometimes in order to function. We need to just spend time with our families and, and, and enjoy the company of our loved ones. It's, it's necessary. He says that about Yom Tov also. It's necessary for people to have social gatherings and family gatherings and connect with each other. 
And this is the, this is not a different reason I would suggest, I, I would suggest that it's not a different reason than recognizing God as the creator. It's part of recognizing God as the creator to recognize that we are finite creatures of God who are limited. And we acknowledge that limitation by taking a break. Just like a person realized that, you know what? If I eat high cholesterol foods, God forbid my arteries are going to get full with cholesterol and I could have a heart attack. That's also a recognition that God created the world, he created the body to be governed by certain rules. And if I don't observe those rules, I'm going to be harmed. If I put toxins into my body that harm my body, then it's going to harm my body. If I don't exercise properly, if I don't rest enough, if I don't eat the right things, if I don't get enough exposure to the to sunlight or whatever it is that we need for our body to maintain its balance. This is recognizing that our body is a creation of God and therefore follows the same laws of nature as everything else. And that's what Yitro was saying to Moshe Rabbeinu. Seeing God's justice in the world doesn't just mean seeing God judging between the Egyptians and the, and the Jews and seeing the hand of God through that. Which, by the way, even when Hashem spoke to Avraham Avinu, he said, that the nation that enslaves the Jewish people is going to be judged, and then they will leave with great wealth. Meaning the fact that he judged them was part of the Yitzhak Mitzrayim, because the judgment is how we see God's mastery of the universe, and God's justice, and God's mercy, and God's... Uh, fairness in his uh, ruling over his creatures. So that was part of the experience, the recognition of God's justice. But that is not just a general concept about how nations are judged by God. It's also a concept of how we live our lives. We can't assume we're going to be the exception to the rule. That if we push ourselves beyond our limits and we don't get sleep at night or we eat unhealthy or we do other, we adopt other habits that are harmful to our bodies, that we're going to be okay because we're an exception to the rule. That's not how it works. Every person as a creature of God is subject to the same laws. And that was what Yitro told Moshe. Don't think you're Superman. Don't think you're invincible. Don't think you'll be able to pull this off. If you don't balance, if you don't run this government, run the Jewish people and administer, administer justice and teach the Jewish people in a way that is... Uh, appropriate and balanced, then ironically, the very administration of justice that you are performing will be unjust to yourself and unjust to the Jewish people because ultimately it will rob them of the teacher that they need because it will damage you, will destroy you, and they will lose even more from the fact that you are incapacitated or the fact that you're not going to be able, that you're stretched beyond your limits. So that, uh, or, or that they become stretched beyond their limits waiting for you to get to their case or whatever the case may be. The point is that the injustice that will be inflicted upon them is greater. Um, and it would I, be ironic if the justice system of the Jewish people inflicted an injustice both on the judge and on the people coming to uh, get answers to their questions and to be taught. So this is the, uh, how I, I would understand what Yitro is contributing to our appreciation of the story here of the uh, of the Matan Torah, that the idea of God's justice as a concept and how we see God's wisdom 
and fairness in his governance of the world, but also how we apply that to our governance of ourselves. And that leads in to the receiving of the Torah, which is the receiving of the Torah is the receiving of the principles that help us to balance and to direct our conduct so that it's the healthiest and the most adaptive and the most successful and the most meaningful lifestyle possible. And that includes striking a balance between all of the different competing interests and complete competing drives and uh, you know and and uh, and and conflicting uh desires that that we have um that it it helps us live a well-rounded and a rich life because it recognize because the torah helps us to recognize how to apply the principles of god's wisdom to the way we live just like Yitro was was saying to moshe rabbeinu you have to apply principles of justice even to the way you dispense justice, which means applying them, the principles of God's law and of natural law and a sense of how you're created to the way that you conduct yourself. And with that insight, we see the Torah is given right after that, um, the way that we apply the principles of God's wisdom to our lives. And it may be because of this that the rabbis say that the Torah was given on Shabbat. Shabbat is the day where the creation was completed and uh, creation really was, the physical creation was completed on Friday, on the sixth day. That was when the creation was completed. The seventh day was the day for reflecting upon the beautiful order of creation. And since, the, since human beings are the only part of creation that don't naturally automatically follow the pattern that God wants for them, they have to use their minds and be conscious of the pattern of the way God wants them to live. They have to think and contemplate and search out uh, the truth and seek the proper path in order to find it. So it requires the mind. So therefore, the Torah was given on Shabbat, which is the day of thinking about the order of God's creation, thinking about how just like the entire universe is governed by the wisdom of Hashem, I have to, by the principles of truth and justice, have to apply lawfulness and the wisdom of Hashem to my own life and make sure that the way I'm living is, uh, is consistent with Hashem's wisdom as well. And so this is how we can see Yitro's pursuit of justice and his seeing of God through the prism of justice and his wanting to apply principles of justice to the conduct of Moshe Rabbeinu leads us into the Torah, which is the application of the principles of God's wisdom to our lives. And if you want to take a step even back before that, you have Amalek, who are the people who want to reject the idea of any principle and reject the idea of any order and simply exploit and take advantage of the vulnerable in violation of any sense of principle or order. Then you have Yitro, who's the opposite of that. And that leads us to Torah, which is applying God's wisdom to every aspect of our lives so we can live the best possible way. So Bezvat Hashem, we will continue next week with Parashat Mishpatim. Um, it's a very fascinating parashat that deals with the laws of the Torah in a lot of detail. So we'll pick out some of those laws to examine them next week. And I wish everybody a, a, a pleasant uh, remainder of the week. Hopefully we won't see too much more snow. Everybody stay warm and uh, see you soon.